Please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 18. John chapter 18, our text will be verses 19 to 24. Last Lord's Day, Jason had went over with us the verses from 12 to 18, and then from 25 to 27, all focusing in on the denial of Peter. And in John's account, we find that in the midst of all of that, we have this, this section right here that we wanted to take out by itself from verses 19 to 24, that while all this is going out or going on outside uh, with Peter, that this is what is going on with Jesus. Now, one of the interesting things about the Gospel of John is that John doesn't record for us the trial of Jesus before Caiaphas. This here is specifically before Annas, the high priest, before he goes to Caiaphas. And so since John doesn't uh, give us those details, we will look at them uh, so that we can get a better understanding uh, of all that is happening here. Um, This is really nothing more than what we would know as a, a kangaroo court. That's all this is. There is no justice here. There is no demand for doing right. <clears throat> this is a prime example of what the lengths that man will go to in order to rid themselves of the authority of their Lord. Rid themselves of Christ in, in this instance right here. You know, it is so amazing to think of that they are so strict, the Jews are so strict about keeping their laws and all of this, and yet they break so many of them on this night just to put forth their agenda. Their agenda is not to bring this man before their courts to find out his innocence. Their agenda is murder. That's what they're after. You know, with any, it's... it's one of those situations in which this just fit their agenda. Because any other time, as we see so much in our own day, even with certain court cases that go on, even unbelievers are demanding of justice. You think of some of the, the recent memory ones of, of uh, you know, like O.J. Simpson or Casey Anthony. And, and now everybody's gearing up for the trial of Megan Boswell. And, and everybody's wanting justice. And then they cry out when no justice is being done. Yet when it fits their agenda, as we have also seen in recent years, they will go to whatever lengths that they need to in order to bring about their desires. This passage here, as we we hear so many times that this is the trial of the century, or that's the trial of the century, this is the trial of the century, what we're reading of today. And, And yet it's not what perhaps we think. It's not the one who, is, who has been arrested and who is being tried as a criminal who is standing trial here. It's everybody else who is standing trial. The lengths that they go to. Because of this instance right here, and you can hold your place there. I'll, I'll just read this very quickly. We'll, we'll go back to it later. Because of what takes place here is perhaps why our Lord <clears throat> had said to these very men, In Matthew chapter 23, 
Beginning verse 34, he says to them, Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murder between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Because of what is getting ready to take place, that, that strong announcement by our Lord, that the, the words of condemnation, more severe than any other generation is coming upon them because of what they're getting ready to do. And yet, in the midst of all this, the only reason why they would even succeed is because our Lord is allowing them to. This is the one that you understand this, that the children of Israel are those who, who have the covenants, they have the statutes, they, they have all of this. They're, they're the privileged ones out of all those that are on the, on the face of the earth, all the nations, because God chose them. And the God who chose them and who entered into covenant with them is now standing before them, being tried by them. And he endures all of this. He goes through this entire mockery of a trial because he has his one goal and his one mission, which is to get to the cross. And though it's not funny at all, it is a little amusing in the sense that they can't even condemn him right in that he has to help them. They can't even do that right. And we'll see that as we work our way through. But some of the things to take away here that are great encouragement to us is that even though he is absolutely innocent, yet he is being treated very unfairly by the unbelieving world. And as Jesus has said to his disciples in the previous verses, that if they've done this to me, they will do it to you. So knowing these things are coming, knowing these things can absolutely happen. And, they, and it brings us comfort, not because it happens, but because our Lord said it would. That he is still in control over all that enough to tell us these things will come upon you. We can take great comfort knowing that darkness cannot overcome uh, for, for God sovereignly rules over it all. And he is orchestrating all of this. But you do see man's depravity put on full display that what man desires to do is not to find out if a God exists. And that they would believe they desire nothing more than to attack him and to rid themselves of any authority that he has to tear their fetters away from them, as the psalmist says in Psalm 2. But throughout this, you see also how our Lord is limiting the suffering of his own people because he's taking the greater attacks upon himself, limiting that which comes upon his disciples. And he does so out of a pure act of grace. And when we stand before others or we are wrongfully accused or any of that, that we can take great comfort regardless of the outcome that God knows our innocence. And he's the greater judge. And so we do the very thing that Christ himself is doing throughout this entire ordeal, which is entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. So let's look at this passage together. If you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. We will read verses 19 to 24. This is the inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words of the living God. Verse 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. Jesus answered him, 
I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together and I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. When he had said this, one of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus saying, Is that the way you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? So Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Let's pray together. Holy Father, we thank you for this portion of your word. Father, thank you for what is written here that brings encouragement to our hearts and comfort to our hearts. And Father, I pray that this passage would, would develop in us a greater adoration for Christ and all that he suffered, all that he endured for the purpose of redeeming his people. Father, guide our thoughts and may you be glorified in us by the Spirit of God who applies this text to us. Bless the preaching of your word, Father. And may you receive all the praise and the glory for all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> so back in verse 12, we read, this is after, <clears throat> of course, Jesus is being arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. We read in verse 12 that the Roman soldiers who arrested Jesus and bound him, led him to Annas first, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now, Annas was the high priest for a time as well, and most likely he's still being referred to as the high priest, just as, as we refer to former presidents still as presidents. But it could also be a form of rebellion from the Jews to still refer to this man as high priest because it was the Romans who would appoint high priest for them, the, high, the role of high priest was to be lifelong. And so it wasn't just Annas who was high priest, but five of his sons were, and then Caiaphas as well. And so it just keeps changing. And so referring to him either was this uh, sign of respect by the people or even a little bit of rebellion on their part, uh, recognizing that it's supposed to be a lifelong calling. In any event, they don't lead him to Caiaphas first. And this is, this is in the dead of night. And you wonder why it is that, why did they take him to Annas first? Why did they take him to Caiaphas' father-in-law, the former high priest? And there's a variety of opinions on this as to why this occurred. One, it could be that it, it would give them an excuse to say, not only did we have this particular uh, trial here before the Sanhedrin, but we had him examined beforehand too. So maybe this is a way for them to say, we had him examined, they found the same things that we did, we tried him, and so it was a legitimate trial. Or it could very well be as well that while Annas is questioning him, that the other members of the Sanhedrin are gathering the other members to convene, giving them time to get this done. Now the Sanhedrin were made up of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. There were 71 members. You only needed 23 to perform a trial, and a trial that would bring condemnation. Now you think of this. This is in the dead of night. And again, they, they pride themselves so much in, in their strict laws that they, that they have and all of that. And then 
They are breaking so many of them just to get through their agenda. They're having this trial under the darkness of night, which was un- this was this was not permitted. It needed to be done in the day. Everybody knew what was happening. This is done in secret. This is not according to their laws. The high priest, Annas, and Caiaphas is going to do the same thing. They're going to ask Christ himself to testify on his behalf. They want him to incriminate himself. That was not allowed. It was witnesses that came forth, either for the person or against the person, and then they deliberated based on that. But Annas is trying to get Jesus to incriminate himself. The fact that this official that is standing near Jesus strikes him, hits him, was absolutely against their laws as well. They were, the, it was not necessary for the accused to prove their own innocence and to be mistreated. The fact that the high priest is leading the charge, who is speaking, Caiaphas is going to do the same thing, that was not permitted as well. Because the high priest can sway the vote by him speaking and giving his opinions. Condemning the criminal on the same day as the trial. Having a unanimous vote to put somebody to death. Finding out that you have false witnesses. If a false witness came forth and they were found out to be false, they were to receive the penalty of whatever the accused was. They should have ended all the proceedings for so many of these things that occurred. But again, this isn't a trial in which they are seeking justice. This is a trial in which they intend to put him to death regardless of what it is that they have to do. Why is it? Why are they trying to put him to death? And it really comes down to the fact that Jesus exposed them for who they are and was gaining a greater popularity. They intended to do this, and they finally found a time in which they could pull it off. Back in John chapter 11, beginning of verse 47, we read this. Therefore, the chief priest and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Now, he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation and not only for the nation, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. This was their plan. But in order to make it seem like he committed the things that he did and so that they could still save face before the people, they go through this mockery of a trial. This is only exposing the darkness of their hearts that they really don't know God. They they have no idea of, of any kind of relationship, what it is to have a relationship with the Lord. For in the times that Jesus had exposed their darkness and exposed their hypocrisy, there was never any repentance on their part to figure out, okay, this is not what what I'm supposed to be doing. I can see that. Maybe I need to repent or any of that. It was always, it just drove them even further to hate him. In the words of Christ are coming true on this night. 
Jesus says that this is the judgment. That light has come into the world and the darkness hates the light. And you see that right here. They will do whatever is necessary in order to put him to death. So they have this mockery of a trial. But they can only succeed because Christ is allowing them to succeed. That's the only reason why any of this is going to happen. Because it is necessary that the scripture be fulfilled. That he can go to the cross. Now they question him. The high priest asks him about his disciples and about his teaching. And Jesus, this is one of the amazing things. Like Josephus writes that many who come before the Sanhedrin would would come in humility and would really cower down because of, of what could happen. But Jesus is standing confident here. And he is even, in one sense, softly, in a sense is what we're reading, rebuking them for what they're doing. They ask him about his disciples and about his teaching. He doesn't even bother to speak on his disciples. Probably, most likely, he's, or the, the high priest is wanting to know about the success of his ministry. You know, how many people do you have, maybe? Something along that line. Jesus doesn't even acknowledge that. He says this, I have spoke openly to the world. I always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. And I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question them that heard. Now what's he saying? Jesus is putting back on them. You're not allowed to question me. What you're doing is against your own laws. Ask those who heard. That's how it was supposed to go. You bring in witnesses. What did he say? What did he not say? And that's why Jesus is saying, why are you questioning me? I spoke openly. He spoke nothing in secret. Now, there are times in which he spoke directly to his disciples. And he, the, the chapters that we read of 13 on, he's speaking to his disciples. But he is not saying anything to his disciples that is contrary to anything that he said out in the open. It is absolutely consistent. So, trying to incriminate him. What did you say in secret, maybe? Maybe you're, you're, you're being seditious. You're, you're trying to build up this, this party in order to overthrow the Romans or to... Rebel against the Romans or whatever they can come up with. But Jesus maintains his composure and says, I spoke in public openly. Everything you need to know, you need to call witnesses for that's the right way to do this. And Jesus is basically throwing back in their face their very laws that they are supposed to abide by. That they don't. Ask those who heard. He's not going to incriminate himself. But at the same time, by doing what he, what he is there, he's also protecting his disciples. He is keeping them from, from receiving any of this that is going on. That's why whenever they come to get him in the garden, he says, well, if you've come for me, let these go. Let these go their way. Because it wasn't, it wasn't appointed for them to be part of this or to suffer with him as he is giving his life on behalf of his people. And so he is protecting them. He is taking the blunt of it all. But he's doing it by a pure act of grace as well. Keeping, keeping his people from, from receiving much more than what they are able to bear. And so he, he says... Nothing about them. 
He doesn't bring it up. He doesn't address it. He just speaks back to say, basically what you're doing is against your own law. But that is a, that is a great source of comfort, though. He's controlling this whole situation. And so that whatever comes about is coming about by his sovereign hand. So that when that comes upon us, that we can rest assured that nothing is coming upon us than what God has intended. What God has decreed. And that the blunt of anything that we ourselves endure in this life, Christ has received so much more. And by his grace towards us, he keeps us from receiving what he did. Because he protects his people. That's the very thing that he prayed to the Father in John 17. Is that his people will be protected. So when he says this. The one who is standing nearby. Struck him. And the idea there is it was open handed. Slapped him. And he says, is that the way you answer the high priest? So, again, this is not at all supposed to happen in any kind of a trial to mistreat the one who was being brought up before charges. And yet this man strikes the Lord of glory, the one who created him. And asked him that question, is that the way you answer the high priest? Perhaps what is he getting at? What he may be getting at is that back in Exodus chapter 22, and this is going to happen to the Apostle Paul as well. But in Exodus chapter 22, verse 28, as the statutes and the commands and all of that are being given, the Lord says, you shall not curse God nor curse a ruler of your people. And this is the very thing that the Apostle Paul would say himself when he is standing on trial. He repeats that verse. It is written that you shall not speak evil of the ruler of your people. Maybe that's what they are trying to um, accuse Jesus of by the way that he answered the high priest. But again, what Jesus says, if I have spoken wrongly, if I have spoken evil, then testify of the evil or testify of the wrong. But if rightly, again, he is putting it back on them. If I have spoken rightly, why do you strike me? Everything that he is saying and doing is only condemning them further. They're the ones on trial. They're breaking it all. You're the one who is hitting me when it's against your own law. I haven't broken your law. If I have, tell me. And it's maintaining the innocence of Christ before before the high priest and those that are there. So Annas can't get anything from him. There's nothing that he can send word to Caiaphas to say, hey, I found this out or whatever. The text tells us he sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. There was nothing that could be done. No charges that could be brought. And so now it's upon Caiaphas himself to condemn him. Now, if you turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew <clears throat> chapter 26 
after he is sent to Caiaphas. Again, John doesn't tell us these things, but he no doubt would assume that the reader knows what's happening. In chapter 26, we read of when Jesus is before Caiaphas. Now, most likely, by the way, as theologians would say, that when he goes before Annas, he's probably not going to Annas's actual house, but in one of the chambers in the temple court. And so when then they take him bound to Caiaphas, they're probably just taking him to another chamber where the Sanhedrin is gathered, where they are ready now. So in chapter 26, verse 57, we read this. Those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. But Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest and entered in and sat down with the officers to see the outcome. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. They did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. But later on, two came forward. And said, this man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. The high priest stood up and said to him, do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He is blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spat in his face and beat him with their fist, and others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is the one who hit you? This is the other half of the trial that he endured. While being tried by Annas to try to gain any kind of a testimony against him, he could find none. They sent him on to Caiaphas. Now again, Caiaphas was not to say anything. He was to allow the court proceedings to occur without him saying anything in order to sway it one way or the other. And yet he is the one who is leading the charge. He is the one asking the questions. He is the one that should have gotten rid of everyone once the false testimony came in and was known to be false. But he still allowed them to come. But, but you see the endurance of Christ, how he is enduring all of this, and he is enduring it by his own covenant people. He is not an outsider. He's not just part of the, the, of the Jews. He is their covenant God. Who is standing before them. Being tried by them. And they can't even. They can't even condemn him. What can they do? They bring witnesses. The witnesses are found out to be false. Why? Because the truth is standing right in front of them. They try to bring in others. There's nothing. There is nothing that can be said to bring a charge against the Lord of glory who is the innocent, sinless one. Nothing. So they can't even condemn him. And so in his sovereign 
ruling and reigning of all things, his sovereign decree, his sovereign orchestrating of all things. He even has to help them condemn himself because they can't even do that right. Because what can mortal man do to God? What can man ever bring a charge? Can man ever bring a charge against God? Can man ever thwart the will of God? Can man do any of these things? And the answer is no, because they are regarded as nothing more than grasshoppers in the sight of God. He laughs at their rebellion. He scoffs at them. But then he has to help them as well. Finally, the high priest. All the witnesses come forth. Can't get anything out of them. Finally, the high priest. I adjure you by the living God. That you tell us whether you are the Christ, the son of God. Up until this point, he's been quiet. Allowing them to do their thing. And then at this point, it's where he has to intervene. He has to intervene in order to bring about his own death. Are you the Christ, the Son of God? And they understand this title being Son of God as being equal with God. Back in John 10, whenever he had said that he was the Son of God, they took up stones to stone him because they understood that he was making himself equal with God. So it's coming back to this question. Are you the Son of God? Basically, are you equal with God? Are you the anointed one? And then Jesus says, you've said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Let me just say what needs to be said so that we can move along here. And he says the very thing that they needed to hear in order to charge him with Blasphemy. So the high priest, in dramatic fashion, tears his robes, accuses him of blaspheming, asks the rest of the court, probably 23 members there, because not everybody was on board with this. They only needed 23, so no doubt they got the 23 that they needed. You have now heard this blasphemy. What do you think? And there's a unanimous vote. He deserves death. If there was a unanimous vote, that was not to be, uh, the, the result was not to be death. Because if there was a unanimous vote, usually that would imply that there was a conspiracy going on. So that wasn't allowed to happen either. But that's all they needed. So in light of that, their very creator the covenant God who had chosen them out of all the nations of the earth spat in his face and beat him with their fist and slapped him, mocked him, prophesied to us, you Christ, who is the one who hit you. You know, you think back. You think back to the time in which the children of Israel were first called by God. You have the covenant made with Abraham, then it goes to, to Isaac and then to Jacob. And then when uh, Moses is commissioned by the Lord to bring the children of Israel out of Egypt, then he enters into covenant with them. He gives them his law. 
All of these things that they were privileged to experience as the the covenant people of God. Out of all the nations of the earth. All the nations of the earth. This this people only. Not because they were greater in number. Not because they were mighty. None of that stuff we read in Deuteronomy 7. Simply because the Lord chose to bestow his love upon them. Because of their forefathers. He had truly revealed himself to them this nation to this people to be their God and for them to be his people to teach them all that was necessary in order to walk before him in righteousness and holiness to privilege them with with receiving the truth of God that they might spend eternity with him hereafter all of those blessings that we look at today as believers he was giving to them that communion and that fellowship with the true and the living God. And yet over and over and over again, they continued to, to forfeit their blessings. They continued to seek out other gods. They continually rebelled against him. They continually symbolically spat in his face every time that they did. And yet this time when he actually stands before them, They are able then to fill up the measure of their sin, as Jesus would say to them in Matthew 23. Because though the people before had rebelled and had had sought out other gods, it had not been allowed to come to the fruition that it is now. No doubt in those previous generations, had they been able to have some kind of a manifestation of God before them, they would have tried to lay hands on him then. But this is, this is that hour. This is the hour in which, in which they, are, they are able to lay their hands on him and spit in his face and beat him with their fists. To demonstrate themselves to be uh, of the darkness of their father, the devil. The very things that Jesus had said. Because had they been desiring to seek after God and desiring to know God, then they would have received Christ because he is their God. He is the God who speaks to Moses from the burning bush. He is the God who speaks while on the mountain with Moses in such a, in such a way that the people could hear and they are, they're frightened. They go to Moses. They say, you just talk to him. This is the same God. The glorious God who passes by Moses and that Moses is privileged to see the reflection of his glory. The God who proclaims his name to Moses about uh, the the, the great graces of who he is. That he is the Lord, the Lord God who is compassionate and merciful, full of loving kindness. This is their God. The The unique thing about Israel compared to any other was the fact that God was in their midst. The true God. He had given them his law and his statutes and the covenants and the feast, everything. And then when the moment comes, they turn around and then they try him based on their own laws of which they are willing to break in order to put him to death. 
There is no greater demonstration of the darkness of men's hearts than what is happening right here. That God is standing before them and they want to lay hands on him to kill him. And the only reason, again, why they succeed is because this is in the sovereign plan of God to happen. Jesus is not taken by surprise at any of this. In fact, everything that he is saying is only condemning them further. You're breaking your own law. Why are you questioning me? Why did you hit me? He is continually putting it back on them of what they are doing. And so they they have their words. They have everything that they need. And so they take it even further. And he allows them to do it. This is really reminiscent of what we find in Psalm 22. when, When the Lord says in Psalm 22 that I'm a worm and not a man. Whereas you can take a worm in your hand and you can do whatever and it's defenseless against you. So too in this instance in which Christ is before his accusers and from there on out. He allows himself to be handled and mistreated by his own creation. Though at any moment, all he had to do was just speak a word, snap his fingers, whatever that he wanted to do to annihilate them. Because of their great rebellion and their great sin. But he endured all of this. Because his mission was not done yet. He endured all of this in order to get to the cross. Because this is where he will become sin for us. Not that he actually becomes a sinner, but that God imputes to him the punishment for our sin. The innocent one that no one could condemn. This is the great grace of God. I mean, if you think of this, this is God who is the one who is high and lifted up, who rules over it all, and who, who then allows his own creation to mock him and to spit in his face, to tear out his beard and to beat him. The greatest one in existence. And this happens not by some foreign people that captured him, but by his own covenant people. He allowed this. But again, it was necessary. Because his mission was to come into the world in order to give his life as a ransom. So while he is enduring all of this on the inside... Peter's rejecting him on the outside. He's going to be lifted up on the cross. He's going to be rejected by men. The Father's going to pour out his wrath upon him. All of this in order to redeem his people. We look at this trial sometimes and we think, well, this is just a trial. He had to go through this and go through that. But to understand the magnitude of what is happening here. This is his covenant people. Their God is standing before them. We look at the cross and we see the suffering that he endured on the cross, but we don't see the humiliation and the mockery that he endured during the trial. 
That's why he says to them, fill up then the measure of your sin. And that's why he says to them that all the the righteous blood of the earth, from from righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, is coming upon you. Because there is no other generation that has ever existed in, in history that has committed the atrocities that this generation did. Killing their own God. That's why the great judgment came upon them. That's why when the judgment came in 70 AD that the entire old covenant system was done. Finished. Never to be reinstituted. Josephus would record that in that very, in that very time when the Romans were sacking Jerusalem and when, when they finally got in that there were probably over a million people there who were stuck inside and who died by the hands of the Romans. That great judgment came upon that generation because of what they had done to Christ. This was humiliating. It's going to be further, he's going to be further humiliated, of course, whenever he goes from Pilate onto the cross. But we can't miss just the trial itself. And see the wicked and what they are able or willing to do, rather, in order to accomplish their evil schemes. And no other time would they have broken these laws when it came to other matters because they want to keep a righteous persona in front of the people. But this was too much. They wanted rid of him. And so they took whatever means necessary with the help of Christ in order to bring it to pass. This is also what Christ endured on behalf of his people. Christ endured this great humiliation. And he endured it. And he, he, he called it upon himself. He, he wouldn't put it off on his disciples. He wouldn't even answer questions about them because he was protecting them. He took the full blunt of it. So that anything that ever comes in this life against us is not even in comparison to anything that he himself endured and suffered. Not just about the cross, but about this here. He was unfairly treated. He was, he was mocked, humiliated, all that. Wrongfully condemned. But it was all in the plan of God. Now, knowing this, this itself is what helps to, get, to give us to, to give us comfort and to give us encouragement during our times in which we are unfairly treated. Because when we're unfairly treated or we're, we're mocked or any of these other things, we automatically, Lord, why are you allowing this to happen? But we don't think, Lord, you allowed this to happen to your son. And so that whatever happens to me is not even in comparison, not even in the same category as what he endured. Oh, Lord, please help me to get through this, that Christ would be honored in me. Is it possible that, that something could happen in our lives and be wrongfully accused and be wrongfully tried and, and wrongfully punished? Absolutely. Absolutely. But even in those things, these are momentary light afflictions that don't compare with the glory that awaits.
And we take great comfort knowing that whatever does come upon us, whatever hurt and whatever pain, whatever suffering, whatever trials that we endure in this life is by the sovereign hand of God. And anything that comes about, God always is the one who gives us the endurance to get through it. It's not in our own strength. It's not in our own endurance. We would give up so easily if, if God wasn't working in us. You know, the very thing that we tell people that we shouldn't, especially when enduring various things, you know, trials of life and, and sufferings and perhaps mockeries and humiliations or being wrongfully accused of things or whatever, we always tell them things like, you'll get through this. You can get through this. You are a strong person. No, you're not. He was. And because he was. And because, because he endured all of this, you can get through what you endure in this life because the one whose strength never wanes is the one who is providing you the strength and endurance in your time. We don't tell people that they're strong enough to endure something. We tell them that God is strong enough to bring them through. We tell them that irrespective of what pain that you endure in this life, this is not something that you're enduring by yourself, but that God is carrying you even when you can't see it. And God is working something in you, even though you can't understand what it is at the time. But he does all things that bring him the most glory. Christ enduring what he did here in this mockery of a trial is what's going to bring him the most glory. And so he endures it. And that's the same for anything in our own life. Whatever brings him the most glory is what's going to happen. And if we can keep our focus upon him, then the intended outcome can absolutely be a reality. That he is most glorified in whatever it is that we endure. One theologian said sometimes God is not most glorified in everything going right in your life. But sometimes he's most glorified in the things that cause you pain and suffering. So instead of shaking our fists to heaven. Asking the Lord why. And, and actually let me, let me take that back. It's not necessarily wrong to ask him why in the sense that we wonder maybe why this is happening. Why? What, what can I do in order to bring honor to you in it? Uh, what's, what's the means that I can, that I can do or to, to bring about uh, in my own self that Christ will be honored? And sometimes we find ourselves asking why, but asking it in such a bitter way. That we're bringing dishonor to him by doing so. We shouldn't be asking those questions. We should just be, Lord, I don't understand. But I'm resting in your sovereignty. That's where we need to be. That's why the Apostle Paul says rejoice in the Lord always. Because we're serving a sovereign God and we should have confidence in him. Everything's going according to plan. Though it may not be pleasant in the times that we endure such things. But this is the, the time in which we live now is the shortest time of our existence. Do you recognize that? This is the shortest time of our existence because hereafter is eternity. When there will be none of this there. 
so we can endure this in light of eternity. That's why Jonathan Edwards, I think, had prayed his prayer, Lord, stamp eternity on my eyeballs, that I can view everything in, in, in view of, of your glory and your majesty and the eternity that awaits, not in the temporary things that cause me pain. That's how we should be thinking too. We can't say that we're being done unjustly with anything that comes about in our life because we're looking at what was actually unjust that accomplished, that was done here rather, but it accomplished the very will of God. Dear friends, don't lose heart. Don't lose heart even when you feel like you're being done unfair. Don't lose heart when things, when things tend to go really wrong. You, you keep your focus upon Christ. You pray and you ask God to help you. You ask God to bring you through. And you remember that nothing that is happening here is by the darkness ever thwarting the will of God. But as Job says, the Lord performs that which is appointed for me. And so this is the necessary things that God has provided in our life that we can glorify him most in. So try to think in those terms that I want to glorify the Lord. This is what has been dealt to me at this particular point in my life for the purpose of growing me, of strengthening my faith, and most of all, and most importantly, and anything else, glorifying my Lord. So don't look at the temporary, don't look at the situation, but keep your eyes focused upon Christ himself, who endured such hostility of sinners against himself, so that you don't lose heart, as the scripture tells us. Let's pray together. Holy Father, thank you. For this portion of your word. Well, Father, sometimes we, we tend to forget all that Christ endured on behalf of his people. We forget the humiliation that he endured by the hands of his own people in this mockery of a trial. Well, Father, let it bring comfort and encouragement to us. Let, us, let it produce in us a greater love an appreciation for Christ so that when the time comes of our own sufferings and trials that we can know without hesitation that it is by your grace alone that is keeping it from being any more severe because Christ took the full blunt and by him doing so we only endure a portion a small fraction of, of what sinners desire to do Thank you for your continued protection. And Father, help us each day grow our faith. Prepare us, Lord, for all that will come our way, that we may glorify you in the midst of whatever may come. We love you because you first loved us. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's children said, amen.